You are listening to the audio from Grace Bible Church. This audio message is a recording from our Sunday morning worship service. We hope you enjoy. You guys can open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. That's where we're going to be hanging out this morning. It's page 961 in your pew Bible. If you don't have your own copy of Scripture, just turn to page 961 and you'll find 1 Corinthians 15. You know, church, a story is told of a doctor who uh, called one of his patients into his office to deliver some very important news. He said, I've received the results of your tests, and I have some bad news and some good news. And the patient was quiet for a moment, and he was kind of sensing the severity of the announcement. And then he said, well, let me have the good news first, doc. And so the doctor took a deep breath, and he said, you only have 24 hours to live. And the patient shouted, oh, my goodness, well, if that's the good news, what can the bad news possibly be? The doctor replied, I was supposed to tell you yesterday. (laughs) You know, a similar story is told about a man who came face to face with death. And he was standing on the street corner and and death walked by. And death looked a little bit surprised, but he kept on going. And terrified, the man went and asked an old wise man what he should do. And the old man said, if I were you, I would run to the next city in a hurry. And so the man got up and he ran as fast as he could to the next city. And as soon as he crossed the city line, he ran right into death. And confused, he said, wait, I just ran into you yesterday, and I left the city to get away from you. And death said, yeah, I was surprised to see you yesterday, too, especially since I'm scheduled to meet you here today. You know, church, death is an inescapable reality of life. In fact, when it comes to death, one preacher said, you can't beat him, you can't buy him off, you can't appease him, you can't outrun him, you can't exercise enough or eat well enough. There is nothing you can do to avoid being overtaken by this enemy. Benjamin Franklin put it this way, in this world nothing is certain except death and taxes, right? Of course, Hebrews 9.27 puts it best, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You see, friends, the fact remains that apart from the Lord returning, no one can escape death. However, if you're a believer in Jesus, then you need not fear death. Why? Because believers enjoy a blessed hope that unbelievers simply don't enjoy. We have the blessed hope that death is not the end. We just sang about it in our last song. The great evangelist D.L. Moody, he said this. He said, someday you're going to read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't believe a word of it. And he continues. He says, at that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher. That is all. Out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned unto his glorious body. I was born in the flesh in 1837. I was born of the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die, but that which is born of the spirit will live forever. Amen? So church, those who believe in Jesus have the assurance of eternal life. Yes, we will die physically, but we're destined to live on eternally. And so this morning, as we continue our study in 1 Corinthians, we're going to revisit why the resurrection of Jesus is the hope of every believer. And we're going to learn how we as believers should live our lives in light of his resurrection. Does that sound like a plan? All right, well, let's pray one more time, asking God's blessing on our time in his word. 
Lord God, I want to thank you for the blessed assurance, the, the wonderful reality of, of being a believer in you, God, that this is not the end, that we have a hope of eternal life, Lord. And God, we know that that hope all rests upon the resurrection. And so as we enter into today's study, I pray that I would get out of your way, that you would speak through my feeble, weak body and mouth, and God, that your Holy Spirit would uh, uh, convict our hearts, encourage our hearts, and draw us closer to your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. All right, so before we hop into today's text, I'm just going to remind you of kind of where we're at. You see, the city of Corinth was a Greek city. And as I told you last week, Greeks by and large did not believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead. And while evidently this pagan thinking began influences, influencing the church's thinking, so much so that born-again believers, people like you and I, were starting to have some second thoughts on the bodily resurrection. And this, of course, was deeply problematic uh, because a belief in the bodily resurrection of the dead is foundational to the Christian faith. After all, if the resurrection of the body is impossible, it would make the resurrection of Jesus impossible, which would make the entire gospel message impossible, which would make our hope for eternal life impossible. So needless to say, everything about the Christian faith rises and falls on the resurrection. And so Paul set out, as he's done in this entire letter, to set out to correct the church's faulty thinking on the subject. So what I've done is I've broken down today's passage into four headers uh, that we're going to work through this morning. Let's begin by looking at the first. Four headers regarding the resurrection. Number one, the premise for the resurrection. Let's look at verses 12 through 19. Follow along with me as I read. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins." Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are people most to be pitied. In 1983, a man named Leslie Scott introduced a now famous game in the world, Jenga. Anybody ever played Jenga before? Now the rules of Jenga are relatively simple. A tower consisting of 54 blocks is constructed and players take turns removing one block at a time. And every time a block is removed, it's then placed on top of the tower, which, as the game progresses, creates a more unstable structure. And, of course, the game ends when the tower goes down, right? Well, in many ways, the Corinthian believers were treating their faith like a Jenga set. You see, by doubting the bodily resurrection, it's as if they were little by little dismantling the very foundation that held them up. And if they stayed on this course, it wouldn't be a matter, it would be, wouldn't be too much time before the whole thing collapsed, their whole faith collapsed. Theologian John Stott put it this way, he said, the person and work of Christ are the rock upon which the Christian religion is built. If he is not who he said he was, and if he did not do what he had come to do, the foundation is undermined and the whole superstructure will collapse. Well, Paul begins this portion of the letter by skillfully defending the bodily resurrection. He builds his argument based on the premise that if the bodily resurrection were false, then our entire faith would fall 
apart. In fact, he lists seven areas where our convictions would collapse, and we're going to look at each one of them briefly. First, if the bodily resurrection were false, not even Christ has been raised. So Paul's first and most obvious argument is simple. If the dead cannot rise, then Jesus did not rise. In other words, to deny the resurrection of our bodies is to deny the resurrection of Jesus' body. The two realities are inseparably linked together. You can't have one without the other. Earlier in the book, Paul wrote in uh, chapter 6, verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Second, if the bodily resurrection were false, our preaching is in vain. Now, years ago, there was this letter that was published in a British newspaper called The Glass Window. And here's what it read. It said, it seems ministers feel their sermons are very important and spend a great deal of time preparing them. I have been attending church quite regularly for 30 years, and I have probably heard 3,000 of them. To my consternation, I discovered that I cannot remember a single sermon. And I wonder if the minister's time might be more profitable spent on something else. And then a wise person wrote back with this response. Excuse me. He said, I've been married for 30 years, and during that time I've eaten 32,850 meals, mostly my wife's cooking, and suddenly I discover that I cannot remember the menu of a single meal, and yet I have the distinct impression that without them I would have starved to death a long time ago. I receive nourishment from every meal. You see, church, the point is that receiving a steady diet of biblical preaching is essential for staying healthy in our faith. Romans 10.17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. However, if there's no resurrection, then anything that you hear coming from this pulpit is completely meaningless. It's useless. There would be no sense in gathering as a church family, uh, no sense in sitting under the word of God, because you'd be sitting under a lie. You see, without the resurrection, the good news is nothing more than fake news. Third, if the bodily resurrection were false, your faith is in Church, one of the most fundamental doctrines of our faith is knowing that this world is not our home. Hebrews 13, 14 says, For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home that is yet to come. It's this knowledge that keeps us going, right? It's this knowledge that keeps us going when we want to quit. It's this knowledge that keeps us standing when we want to fall. It's this knowledge that keeps us hopeful when life hurts most. But again, if there's no resurrection, then there's no hope of a home yet to come. The very heart and soul of our faith rests upon a bodily resurrection. Fourth, if the bodily resurrection were false, we are even found misrepresenting God. You know, most if not all countries have highly ranked representatives called ambassadors whose job is to establish diplomatic relations with other countries. They have the responsibility of representing their country's best interests. And so therefore, for obvious reasons, ambassadors need to make sure that they're representing their country well, yes? Well, as believers, we're given a similar responsibility. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore we are what? Ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, as ambassadors for Christ, we carry a kingdom message. And that message tells others that they can be reconciled to God by believing in the person and the work of Jesus. And at the moment of belief, they're going to be saved. They're going to receive the gift of eternal life. However, if there's no resurrection, then every time we share the gospel message with someone, we're actually misrepresenting God. Chuck Swindoll notes, 
He said, if there's no such thing as a literal resurrection from the dead, then everyone who claimed to have seen the resurrected Lord is quite obviously a liar. Paul, Peter, the apostles, James, the 500. Likewise, one might even say that even a Christ, every Christian thinker and leader who has ever defended the faith has therefore lied. Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Wesley, Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, Billy Graham, even Christ himself, who predicted his own resurrection and the resurrection of all of us, has lied to us. And all the martyrs who died believing in Christ's resurrection and hoping for their own resurrection have died for a lie. This is the reality if the resurrection were false. Fifth, if the bodily resurrection were false, you are still in your sins. You know the phrase, dead man walking? You ever hear that phrase, dead man walking? It actually originated in the United States in the early 20th century. And it was created in prisons to describe a man who was condemned to death being led to his execution. And as the guards walked the prisoner down the prison halls, the prisoners in their, in their uh, cells would be shouting, dead man walking. Church, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of our sin is death. In other words, just like a prisoner on death row, every single one of us are dead men walking, unable to save ourselves. It's for this reason that God sent Jesus. You see, Jesus became the dead man walking for us. He paid the penalty for our sin that we might be saved and receive the free gift of eternal life. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, Dead men walking in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. However, if Jesus remained in his tomb, if he was dead in his tomb, we'd still be dead in our sins. We'd still be dead men walking. If Jesus never rose from the grave, we'd have no hope of rising from the grave. Sixth, if the bodily resurrection were false, there also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. As we were singing that song right before I came up, Beautiful, my mind started thinking about some of my own loved ones who I know that are, are with Jesus right now. And I started thinking about, man, the joy it is that I'm going to be able to see them again someday. It's one of the greatest sources of comfort in our faith, isn't it? The knowledge of knowing our loved ones, our believing loved ones are with Jesus. And having that knowledge that, man, when we die, we're going to be able to be with them. You know, it may sound cliche, but it's true. For the believer, death is not goodbye. It really is just see you later. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. You see, church, if there's no resurrection, then there is no hope of seeing our loved ones again. And last... If the bodily resurrection were false, we are of all people most to be pitied. Almost 40 years ago, out of the mouth of Mr. T, the world, do I have your attention now? The world was introduced to a statement that is now actually trademarked by Mr. T. I pity the fool. Say it, say it with me. I pity the fool. I pity the fool. Right? Well, church, if the resurrection were false, that makes Christians the most foolish people on planet Earth. And if anyone deserves pity, it would be us. I mean, after all, Christians sacrifice and suffer so much for the sake of the gospel, right? 
We go all in setting our hope on Jesus as being the Lord of life and death and eternity. We dedicate our entire lives to following him, believing wholeheartedly that this is not the end. If this life was all there was, if there were no resurrection, then everything we've dedicated our lives to would be a lie. And so all this to say, every hope, every comfort, every peace that comes with the Christian faith rises and falls on the bodily resurrection. If the bodily resurrection were false, we'd all be fools. But praise God, the bodily resurrection is not false. It's a fact. And this leads us to the second header, the promise of the resurrection. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know, in the Old Testament, before the Israelites harvested their crops, they were to bring the first fruits or the first portion of their harvest to a priest as an offering to the Lord. And the full harvest of their crops could not be made until the first fruits were offered. That was kind of the rule. Well, Paul used this Old Testament practice as a metaphor for Christ's resurrection. You see, Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits, leading to the full resurrection harvest. That phrase, those who have fallen asleep, is a euphemism for believers who have died. So in other words, Christ's resurrection set the stage for our resurrection. Paul continues, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Church, I just want to remind you of something that most of you are aware, but when God created the human race, he gave us a choice. He didn't create us as robots or puppets on a string. In his love, God gave us the free will to obey or to disobey him, and we chose to disobey him. The Bible calls this sin. Sin began when the first man, Adam, chose to rebel against God, and the consequences of his rebellion have impacted the world ever since. Romans 5.12 says, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. And so because of sin, evil, pain, hurt, and suffering entered the world. And because of sin, physical death entered the world. And because of sin, spiritual death entered the world. However, Paul tells us that the resurrection of Jesus reversed the curse. You see, the entire human race is born into a sinful state that separates us from God. However, when a person becomes born again through their faith in the resurrected Jesus, their sins are forgiven, their relationship with God is restored, and they are given the hope of eternal life. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to, get, uh, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. How many of you are thankful for the everlasting inheritance we have in Christ? Say, I am. Amen. Amen. And this leads us to the third header, the process of the resurrection. Follow along with me in verses 23 through 28. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected, accepted 
who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Paul, what are you talking about here, right? <laughs> Whew. Church, when I was in high school, I was part of the drama club. I'm not afraid to admit that. In fact, not to brag or anything, but I was casted to perform in a few key roles in uh, The Sound of Music and Hello, Dolly. And let me tell you something, I was good. I was really good. In fact, the paparazzi has not left me alone ever since. But in all seriousness, one of the things that I've learned through my time in the drama club is uh, it's very dramatic, number one, but also is that plays are broken down into three different acts. There's act one, act two, and act three, and act three includes, of course, the grand finale. And you see, there's a sequential order to how the story is to unfold on the stage with a few intermissions in between. And once the story is over, all the actors come back to the stage and they take their bow under the spotlight. Well, when it comes to the bodily resurrection, God has a process, a sequential order of how it's all going to unfold on the world stage with a few intermissions in between. And once his story is over, it's going to end with the spotlight shining solely on and so the first act, if you will, is Christ, the first fruits. In other words, Jesus was the first to rise from the dead. This act has already happened. Right now, we're in the intermission. We're living in this intermission stage. And we're waiting for the second act to begin, which is at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Some of you will remember that the great Johnny Cash wrote a song called Ain't No Grave. And some of the lyrics say, there ain't no grave can hold my body down. There ain't no grave can hold my body down. When I hear the trumpet sound, I'm going to rise right out of the ground. Ain't no grave can hold my body down. See, here Johnny Cash was actually singing about an event called the rapture. You see, the Bible teaches that at any moment, Jesus is going to return and resurrect his church. And during this time, anyone who's ever placed their faith in Jesus will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And at the rapture, the bodies of those who have died will be resurrected, renewed, and reunited with their soul. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and at the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Which is kind of cool, because if the rapture is going to happen, right, um, those of us that are alive for it, which would be neat if the rapture happened today, I'd be down for that. How about, how about you, right? Well, we could actually watch the dead rise first, which would be kind of freaky and super cool. And then you're like, man, I hope I'm after them. Otherwise, you're in trouble. But anyway, he says, then we, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds uh, to meet the Lord in the air and so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And then following the rapture, another intermission is going to take place. This is what Paul's talking about in this passage, by the way. It's, I know it's kind of kind of complicated, so I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. And during the, this next intermission af after the rapture, the world is going to experience a great tribulation, followed by the millennial reign of Christ. And the millennial reign of Christ, or the millennial kingdom, is basically, it's a thousand-year period when Jesus, along with the resurrected saints, will physically reign on earth. And during this reign, Jesus will destroy every rule, authority, and power. He will put all of his enemies under his feet, including death itself. And this will lead to the third and final act when the unsaved dead 
will be resurrected. Their bodies will be resurrected. And they're going to receive their final judgments. And then after that final judgment, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are going to take the world stage and reign in glory forever. Hence, God will be all in all. You with me? And so, church, needless to say, the bodily resurrection isn't just a significant event in the past. It's also a significant event in the future. And its significance should impact, then, how we live in the present. And this leads us to the fourth and final header, the practicality of the resurrection. Look at verses 29 through 32. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts of Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What are you talking about, Paul? What, what are you talking about? Okay, well, in a court of law, right, there's this final speech that is made by each side in the trial. It kind of summarizes the evidence and the main argument of their case. This is called the closing argument. Well, here... Paul makes his closing argument for the resurrection. And he begins by calling out the Corinthian believers on a peculiar practice they were engaging in. It appears that some within the church were being baptized by proxy on behalf of other believers who have died before they could be baptized. Okay? This was problematic for several reasons. First, baptism is not a requirement for salvation, number one. A person can only be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Second, a person cannot be saved after they die. As I mentioned earlier, it's appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. There's no waiting period. There's no time to be prayed into heaven. And so it's unclear where and why the Corinthian believers picked up this unbiblical practice. Nevertheless, Paul pointed out its absurdity if there's no resurrection. He wasn't condoning it. He was just saying simply... Look at why are you guys baptizing for dead people when you don't even believe that dead people are going to rise anyway? He was just kind of using their faulty actions as, a, as, a, as an illustration to help build his case. And then Paul went on to argue how the resurrection impacted him personally. He, you see, he faced danger and persecution at every level. He talked about fighting with beasts at Ephesus. Does that mean he was getting like in fist fights with grizzly bears in Ephesus? Or like what was going on there? Well... Interestingly enough, we don't really know for sure, but it's probably a reference to the strong opposition that he received from people who rejected the Lord in Ephesus. And simply put, Paul's point was, what's the point? That was the point he was making. What's the point? If there were no resurrection, what is the point in partaking in spiritual practices? If there's no resurrection, what's the point of enduring suffering for the sake of the Lord? If there's no resurrection, believers might as well just embrace it, just an unhinged YOLO approach to life. You only live once. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we all die anyway. However, because there is a resurrection, because we do have a hope after this life, it should change how we live our lives today. And so Paul ends his argument by providing three points of practical application for every believer. Let's look at each one of those quickly. Look at verse 33. 
He said, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So the first point of application that Paul had for the Corinthian believers then and for us today is that we should be selective in our company. Selective in our company. You see, the Corinthian believers became entangled with ungodly people. And they allowed the attitudes and actions of the culture to influence the attitudes and actions of the church. And as a result, their doctrine and their deeds were all distorted. That's how they ended up engaging in all this unbiblical thinking and all these unbiblical practices. And so, church, if we're not careful with our company, the same could happen to us. And just to be clear, Paul is not saying that we should never hang out with non-Christians. Obviously, we need to rub elbows with people who don't know Jesus so we can point them to Jesus. He's saying that we need to make sure that the number of positive Christian influences in our lives outnumber the the number of negative non-Christian influences in our lives. Otherwise, we're at risk of being spiritually corrupted. Second point of application, verse 34, the first part. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. The second point of application is that we should be sober-minded. Some of your translations might even say sober-minded. In other words, instead of embracing worldly thinking, we need to embrace biblical thinking. Over this past summer, a study showed that Bible reading dropped to an unprecedented low in America. No surprise there, right? No surprise there. Our country's a mess, spiritually speaking. But biblical literacy dropped to an unprecedented low in the church as well. And it's no wonder why there's so many churches that are a mess, right? Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Friends, the only way for you and I, listen, the, only, the, the world is so jaded and messed up morally and there's all this stuff going on and man and, and the more time we spend filling our minds with worldly stuff and I don't care what it is you're going to get messed up as a result and so the only way for us as believers to kind of remain standing and be encouraged why the world falls apart all around us and the only way to stay close to God and correct in our doctrine is by spending less time being influenced by the world and more time meditating and memorizing the word of God. It says in scripture, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. So friends, if you want to be walking in truth, you have to be in God's word. It's non-negotiable. And the last point of application, the second part of verse 34, and do not go on sinning. You see, the third point of application is that we should aim for sinlessness, right? As believers, we should deliberately put to death any attitudes and actions of the flesh and replace them with attitudes and actions of the spirit. And so practically speaking, we do this on a day-to-day -day level by regularly confessing sin and committing ourselves daily to following Christ. You know, committing ourselves to following Jesus is not a one-and-done deal. It doesn't happen just the day you get saved and then you're done doing it. It's got to be a daily decision. That's why Jesus said, take up your cross what? Once? No, he said, take up your cross daily and follow me. And let's face it, we're covered by the blood of Jesus, we're saved, God no longer holds our sin against us, but do we still sin every day? So that means we need to be in regular confession every day, not to, to maintain our salvation, we can't lose our salvation, but to maintain good relationship with the Lord, so that, so that we're not quenching the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, and, and we're able to be used by God for his purposes and his glory.
And so, church, all this to say, as we await our own glorious resurrection to heaven, God desires that we do everything in our power with the help of the Holy Spirit to live resurrected lives on earth. And this was God's call to the Corinthian believers then, and it's God's call for all believers now. Galatians 2.20 says it best, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen? Now, if you're here today, and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, then listen, you cannot claim the promise of eternal life. Yes, your body will be resurrected, but it'll be resurrected in Act 3. And if you remember, that's, that's not a good time to be resurrected. Because when the unsaved dead stand before the Lord, friends, you will be cast out of his presence for eternity because you never placed your faith in Jesus. However, that can all change right here, right now. And that's the beautiful thing about the gospel. As long as you're still breathing, you can still respond to it. Jesus said in John 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's Jesus' question for his disciples then, for his hearers then. It's, it's his question for you now. Do you believe this? Do you believe in the resurrected Christ? Friend, the moment when you place your faith in Jesus, he will forgive you of your sins, save your soul, and give you the gift of eternal life. And to do so, all you must do is admit that you're a sinner before God. Ask God for his forgiveness and believe in the person and work of Jesus. Let me tell you, if that's something that you want to do today or that you decide to do today, be sure to let us know because we want to be able to help you grow in your relationship with God. Say, well, how do I do that? I mean, literally, you believe. You believe. And you can respond to that belief by just praying in the quietness of your seat. Lord, I believe that I'm a sinner. I admit that I'm a sinner before you. And Lord, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die for my sins, paying the penalty on my behalf. And, and Lord, I, 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 I place my faith in Jesus. I trust in you and you alone for my salvation. I make you the savior of my life. So Lord, I accept you now and help me to live for you from this day forward. And if you pray something along those lines and you believe it, and you, and, and you, and you, you believe it sincerely, you're saved. You say, well, it, that seems too simple. Well, it's, it actually, it, it's, it's harder than you would think because if it was that simple, everybody would believe in Jesus, right? There's no such thing as easy believism. A lot of people's hearts are hard and they can't just accept the fact that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, but it is. It's a free gift. And I want to encourage you to receive it this morning. And if you do, let us know. Mark it on your connect slip. Come talk to myself or one of the other pastors after the service. Come forward after we dismiss and grab an information packet that might will, will help you grow in your relationship with the Lord. But if you need to get right with Jesus, if you want the promise of a resurrected body, resurrected life someday, place your faith in Jesus today. So this time I'd like to invite the praise team to come forward. And as they do, let me just bow our heads and pray in response. Lord God, I want to thank you for your word. And God, I want to praise you for the promise of a resurrected body, the promise of eternal life. Lord, that is the, the hope of every believer. That is the joy of every believer. That's the comfort and the peace of every believer. 
Lord, that no matter what happens this side of heaven, we are promised heaven. Lord, help us to never forget that truth and let that truth motivate us on to godly living while on earth. Lord, if there's anyone here that is unsure of their eternal destiny, if there's anyone here that needs to place their faith in Jesus for the very first time today, I pray that they would pray. That they would pray to you in the quietness of your seat, pray to receive Christ. I pray that you would save their souls today. Thank you, Lord, that your word is living and active. and Your Holy Spirit moves among us. Help us to leave here, Lord, living for you and all God's people said. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Grace Bible Church. For more information about our church and our ministries, you can visit gracebiblepa.com.